0: People ask me, why are you a hunter-ring queen? And it's because it's terrible. It's impossible. You can't succeed. You get one hair's breadth of a lead change, you know, late in the back, and you're out of the ribbon. Um, you know, you slightly quick to the first fence and a tiny bit deep, and, you know, it's almost like you didn't exist. Uh, and it's miserable in its own way, but the feeling of getting it right is deeply powerful, particularly with how easy it is to fail. And I think that that really steals someone's character and makes you tough and makes you resilient. And horses have always uh, done that for me. And also learning from example. The horses try, try and try again for us, anything we ask of us. um, They want to get it right. And they don't always, um, but they keep trying. And I think that's uh, a really important lesson that they've taught me my whole life.
1: Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandra Olinick, and this week's episode is with New York Times staff reporter Sarah Maslinier, whose book, Horse Crazy, The Story of a Woman and a World in Love with an Animal, was released earlier this month. In our conversation, Sarah describes her book as a reported look at obsession—the world's obsession with horses, as well as her own. Through solid reporting, Sarah allows readers to live vicariously through her firsthand exploration into lesser-known corners of the horse world. These include the long-buried legacy of Black American cowboys, the adorable but powerful Marwari horse of India, and an up-close look at how imported warm bloods are flown across the ocean in a 747. Woven throughout these stories and more are personal anecdotes and reflections of how she fed her horse fix growing up in Manhattan to non-horsey parents. To give you more about Sarah's life as a Times reporter, she was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Unvarnished, her investigation into New York City's nail salon industry. Before becoming a staff reporter in 2011, she freelanced for the paper, reporting from West Africa, the Alaskan wilderness, post-earthquake Haiti, and wildfire-ravaged California. Sarah graduated from Columbia University and earned a master's at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. As for her current horse life, she owns three horses and competes in the adult amateur hunter division on Stellar, her gray Mecklenburg. Appropriately, when she and I spoke over the phone in July, she was at a New Jersey competition with Stellar. One side note about the interview. We were able to edit out noises that you typically hear at horse shows, like a tractor unexpectedly driving by. But what we couldn't fix is a faint jingling that came from my side of the conversation. I wish I could tell you what it was, but I can't for the life of me figure it out. I apologize for the slight distraction. Which fortunately mainly occurs when I'm asking questions. Now, before getting into our conversation, I want to thank the sponsor of this week's podcast, Pack. Due to the challenges of modern horse keeping, many horses can benefit from the support of supplements to help them look and feel their best. Every horse is different, so SmartPack has made it easy to create a customized supplement program for your horse. With over 350 supplements available, and a team of horse health experts on staff to help you choose among them, SmartPack is the smartest place to get your horse what he needs. Plus, smart supplements are guaranteed to work when you order them in SmartPacks. If you don't see results in two months, SmartPack will give you your money back. Visit SmartPack.com or call 1 800 461 8898 to learn more about how SmartPack. Help you take great care of your horse today. Now, let's jump right into the conversation with Sarah, where she shares what prompted her to write Horse Crazy.
0: So, I'm a reporter for the New York Times, but I'm also a secret horse girl. And everywhere I've been all over the world that my reporting has taken me, when I'm finished with my story, I have sought out the horses from Senegal, West Africa, where I was covering terrorism, to California, where I was covering wildfires. When I'm finished, I always look for them. And in doing so, I collected the stories of all these animals. And I decided to write this book, which I'm describing as a reported look at obsession. But it's really the story of my own obsession woven through it. And
1: how did you decide to to make the book sort of a hybrid between uh, these horses and their humans and, and sort of a memoir about your life and your experiences with horses?
0: So I pitched the book actually as a story of horses, uh, as their story. And I ended the pitch, uh, you know, this isn't my story. This is the story the horses have told me. And the pushback I got from Simon Schuster, my publisher, was, no way, this is your tale. And then I I realized how true that was, that uh, horses, as I've learned their tales all over the world, have really told me my own and shaped my identity. So the hybrid came, I won't say quite naturally, because as a reporter, using the word I is just beaten out of us, we never (laughs) read about ourselves. So that was pretty uncomfortable, Um, but uh, the story was always there, because horses are my story. Now, each of the chapters, I thought this was fascinating,
1: is named after a horse you have known, whether personally or sort of in a more general sense,
0: like Briar's or
1: Misty of Chincoteague. Why did you decide to write it that way?
0: Well, Sandy, you're interviewing me as I'm standing at Princeton Show Jumping, a horse show in New Jersey. I have the day off to take these calls, and I'm standing next to my horse, Stellar. And the reason why a chapter is named after each of these animals is because they're really chapters in my life. Uh, Amigo, the first horse I ever had, who was a free quarter horse passed off on me, uh, gave me a sense of identity. Stellar, who is a a gray Mecklenburg standing right next to me now, Um, he has given me my adulthood with horses and let me perfect the sport in a new way. So the chapters of my life are bookended by horses. So it just made sense. So do you have a favorite
1: chapter or section of the book?
0: One of my favorite chapters is called Swamper. It is about the erased history of the black cowboys from the American narrative. One in four cowboys in the American West were actually black. And the writers of our narrative as a country were white, and they didn't include these people. And so I sought out black cowboys around the country who are trying to reinsert themselves in the national story where they belong. And that was really meaningful to me. As a Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors and an immigrant, I didn't think horses were mine. They belonged to someone else and I was sneaking in. Um, But the truth is, horses don't care what you look like or where you're from. They just care, as Monty Roberts says, that you're a safe place to be. And uh, they don't judge and uh, they are inclusive. So I'm so glad that I was able to tell the story of horses being truly inclusive.
1: Why do you think, you know, Black cowboys were erased from from our, our history?
0: Well, I wrote the book over a year ago, and it's been in progress ever since. But that story of Black cowboys and my realization that I knew nothing about them and how wrong that was came when I was a 20-something bicycling through Harlem, New York. And I saw some horses, believe it or not, in the middle of the river, uh, in the middle of the Harlem River on an island. And I pedaled over the footbridge and began that day working for Dr. George E. Blair and his wife, Anne, who run the New York City Black Rodeo. And their life goal has been to write cowboys of color back into the story where they belong. And look, history is written by the victors and they tell the story that they want it to be. And as the historian William Lauren Katz told me before he passed away, he was the preeminent scholar of the black West. Uh, the Story of America: If Black people came along, they came along uh, under whips and in chains, and that's not the American narrative people want to remember. And so their truth was erased. And yet, uh, horses belonged to everyone, and cowboys of color um, were always there. Actually, the first Kentucky Derby was won by a Black man, and the horse was trained by a former slave. So uh, Black people have always been part of the equestrian story.
1: I like that chapter, two where you're talking about, you know, George and Anne Blair and why they started this New York City Riding Academy. I think you had said in the book that Dr. Blair invited only the most undeserved children of the city from the poorest tracts of places in the Bronx and Brooklyn to visit his island equine paradise. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned asking him why you didn't teach riding lessons. And he, he said, you know, I'm not teaching them to ride. I'm teaching
0: them to dream. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very, very fitting. Thank you. And, and look, that's what horses do for all of us. They teach us to dream. I was walking through this horse show where I'm standing right now and there's a sign on a stall that says, lock your stall, protect your dream. And horses are a dream. They allow us to have power we would never otherwise access. They allow us to have freedom that we only imagine we can ever feel on their back. And why can't they be everyone's dream? Uh, they should be. Very good
1: point. Um, so now, uh, it's interesting, you, you grew up in New York City, uh, without, I think it may be fair to say, you know, without a lot of family support for your riding, um, but you still managed to have Mm -hmm. a lot of different experiences riding or, you know, with horses. And, um, another interesting chapter I thought was titled, uh, Bark," where you discuss riding Mm -hmm. in New York City's Claremont Riding Academy. Um, can you, that just seems very foreign to, you know, any of our listeners who, have horses out, you know, either at their, their own place or board, uh, you know, sort of in more rural, rural areas. So, you know, could you just talk a little bit about that experience?
0: Sure, it surprises people that New York City is actually a city built by and for horses. The width of the avenues is the width of four horses abreast pulling a hansom cab, which is what was a New York City taxi when my city was new. And there are tr- troughs and tureens uh, at various places all over the city where animals once drank. And believe it or not, on West 89th Street was a vertical stable where the horses lived upstairs. That was Claremont Riding Academy and I would arrive as a little girl for my riding lesson, and a call would go over the loudspeaker. I would ride an Appaloosa called Birch Bark, and they'd say, Birch Bark, and there he would arrive at the top of the steps, and he'd trot down a full flight of essentially stairs, and uh, we'd ride in what looked like a parking garage, and it just shows that I'm not alone in my horse crazy, the fact that anyone would even imagine to have such a place operating just shows how much we need horses in their lives, our lives. And then I found them elsewhere. I was a Mounted Parks Enforcement Auxiliary Ranger in Central Park when I was a teenager. And I was actually a a truant at school, but I would chase truants on horseback and tell them to go back to school as a ranger. So where there's a horse crazy, there's a way
1: to find those animals. And that was another, you know, I'd noted, um, you know, that chapter about Samson, um, who was you know, your mount. Um, and I love the story patrol
0: horse, yeah,
1: your patrol house when, um, you tried out, I guess, you know, tried out for, for the, um, mounted patrol. And, um, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you, I think you talked about how you first felt like you failed, failed the test on him, Mm -hmm. but it, it turned out to be the opposite.
0: So the parks department in New York city will probably kill me for saying this, but their horses are barely broke they can go forward, they can walk on patrol, they can't really do much else. So when I tried out for the Parks Department in that vertical stable, Claremont, where they also are kept, I got on the horse, she said, trot, the sergeant, I kicked that Belgian draft to trot, and Samson just stood there, and he proceeded to just stand there for probably 10 minutes, I was so humiliated when she said the test was over. I got off literally back onto the mounting block because I hadn't moved from it, and I was fighting back tears of failure. And she said, "Congratulations, Sarah, you passed the test." I said, "What?" And she said, "Samson can only go on patrol. He usually flies backwards when you're in the ring. Congratulations on not letting him have your way, his way with you." And that was my introduction to the mounted unit.
1: I think we've all had experiences where we've been on a horse who
0: doesn't do what we want him to do. Um, so Oh yeah. I just don't don't pet a police horse, don't pet a mounted horse. You never know how broke they are. <laughs> so,
1: um that you know you touched upon one of the what I sort of saw as a theme through the book about um you know you talk about failing the test before you succeeded and Samson was one example and I think that's an interesting life lesson especially with horses. Um can you talk a little bit about that?
0: I talk about it often in terms of the hunters. People ask me, why are you a huntering queen? And it's because it's terrible, it's impossible. You can't succeed. You get one hair's breadth of a lead change, you know, late in the back and you're out of the ribbon. Um, You know, you slightly quick to the first fence and a tiny bit deep and, you know, it's almost like you didn't exist. Uh, And it's miserable in its own way, but the feeling of getting it right is deeply powerful. Particularly with how easy it is to fail. And I think that that really steals someone's character and makes you tough and makes you resilient. And horses have always uh, done that for me. And also learning from example. The horses try, try, and try again for us, anything we ask of us. um, They want to get it right and they don't always, um, but they keep trying. And I think that's uh, a really important lesson that they've taught me my whole life.
1: Um, And one other, One other chapter was about the Mar- Marwari, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this, Marwari. Marwari, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In India, and, uh, you know, there was a few different scenes, but uh, the scene of the horse's owner, you know, you you were, I guess, a spa reporter, but you also, you kind of described sneaking off to ride uh, these Marwari horses with the curly, cute <laughs> ears. Could you talk a little bit about that
0: experience? Sure. So I had this really weird period of my life where, believe it or not, I was a professional spa reporter and my job was to get massaged all over the world. And I know it's crazy. I can't believe I got to do it. Um, But when I was done, I would always try to find the horses wherever I was. And I found these unbelievable Mawari horses, which are an indigenous Indian breed and they're big like thoroughbreds and fleet like Arabians, but they have these cute ears on the top of their head that meet in a heart. And they're just so stinking adorable. And I went riding with an Indian cavalry officer and he spoke Hindi and I speak English. And as we left, the person dispatching the ride said the only word that I understood, he said some stuff in Hindi to him, and then he said, no gallop. And as we turned a corner, I said to the officer, yes gallop (laughs) and he cracked up and what's really interesting about that experience is that riders do speak the same language he saw that i could ride he saw in how i controlled the horse and the answer was yes yes gallop and we blasted through a marble quarry probably faster than i've ever ridden in my life i couldn't breathe the air was so thick. it was almost like being on a in a car with no windshield you know just the air hit me and then he turned around and saw I was still on and then we galloped faster. And it was really an incredible experience. But I think the best part of it was realizing, as I put in the book, there's an Esperanto of equestrians, a universal language that we both realized we were true riders and that was all that needed to pass between us. And the conversation was with our horses and our bodies and we flew.
1: Yeah, a little bit um, you know, more personal, you you also talked about um riding your horse, Trendsetter, Dutch Worm Blood, mm-hmm. at a competition at the U.S. Equestrian Team Headquarters in Gladstone, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you talk a little bit about Trendy throughout, you know, the latter part of the book, but um, you were in a flat class on a very hot August day, and I, I, there was a mishap where Trendy was transitioning from the canter to the walk, I think, and um, he stumbled yep. and fell hard and you got pitched and he was somersaulting towards you. And then he twisted in midair and missed you. And you talk about how a lot of people, you know, myself included, will anthropomorphize, uh, but you also say you feel like trendy saved you. And I, I thought that was, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, could speak to a lot of people, uh, you know, horse people. I it's,
0: There's a tremendous risk among people who spend all their time with animals to think that they're more than they are. And yet you can't deny that they are. So sometimes I try to be staunch, you know, not talk to my horse in a baby voice because he's not a baby. (laughs) Um, And sometimes if I have a mistake with my horse at a fence, I'll pet him and my trainer will say, don't pet him. that's the wrong message for him. But in my mind, I want him to feel better about making a mistake, you know, which is totally goofy. And so I try to stay away from these anthropomorphistic tendencies that we have. But then when I came crashing down at this horse show, really doing no more than a downward transition, this terrible accident and my horse somersaulted as I lay in the ground, I waited for his body to crash down on me because that's the direction we were going and it didn't happen. And I looked up and I got up and my horse was on the ground facing the total opposite direction of the trajectory of our fall actually cast on a flower pot. (laughs) like upside down like a dog and he just lay there until we got a crowd of people to turn him over and he was fine and I just thought to myself what happened there how did I not get crushed by 1200 pounds of horse and then a lady came up to me and she said you know I was behind you in that flat class I was getting checked out by the EMT and she said I watched that horse save your life she said he was coming down on you and he torqued his whole body The other way and threw himself into the fence. And I knew that's what had happened. I had seen it and I knew it in my soul. I locked eyes with him as he fell. And I didn't want to believe it because I didn't want to be sappy almost. But the truth is, I'm a member of his herd and he's a member of my herd and you protect your herd. And that was a really powerful moment for me, realizing the level of connection that we can have with these animals. And Trendy is my hard horse and Maybe I'm his heart person. <laughs>
1: and then one more, and I think this would be interesting to to practical horsemen listeners, um, the chapter titled Cadillac Boy, um, you talk about how you mm. flew with a group of horses, uh, Dutch warm-leds. Um, I guess, why did you decide to do that? And, and you know, what was that like?
0: The journalistic impulse to figure out why and how things work is very hardwired into me. I always want to pull things apart and understand it. And here we are in America with these beautiful imported horses that so many people have and cherish. And I want to understand the mechanics of how do they get here? Where do they come from? So I actually got on a 747, flew to Amsterdam uh, for the express purpose of flying back that same day in that same plane, but this time with nine Dutch warmbloods in the belly of the 747. And it was really interesting to see how horses are transported, how they come to America. And believe it or not, I think that the entire system works because of one simple, humble ingredient, which is hay. If a horse is chewing on a bale of hay, they can withstand turbulence. They can withstand cabin pressure changes. They can withstand being loaded onto an airplane. And it was my job as an equine flight attendant to keep my charges supplied in hay. And one of the sweetest parts was, as the landing gear deployed, I was actually standing in the cargo hold with the horses. So you don't take a seat at that point and buckle up. You you essentially latch on to the horses and, and hang out with them to keep them calm. And I was in a shipping cube with three horses as we started to go down, and they didn't know what was happening to them, right? Their inner ears all of a sudden changed, and they were sort of shocked, and they all crushed their heads into me the way a foal goes under a mother's udder for safety and it was such a profound experience um to realize that I had become their safety um and then we touched down and and we were home
1: and they went back to eating hay probably they (laughs) did they immediately went back to eating
0: hay they were like what is happening to us oh there's hay."
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I like that in the book too how you know um you kind of weave in, you know, about hay. And and I think you spoke with uh, Dr. Malinowski about mm-hmm. uh, how horses or how and why horses are eating hay. But-
0: horses Horses eat 16 hours a day, according to a Rutgers University study. I had to figure that out. I had to understand that. We all know our horses are ravenous <laughs> at all times, but the science behind it, that they're just starving every minute is just fascinating. And again, as a journalist, I love pulling threads until I can unravel the whole thing.
1: Talking a little bit about, you know, we, we talked about the theme, you know, one of the themes, you know, failing the test, but you know, another throughout the book um, you talk about your father's story of surviving the Holocaust and how some of that made you feel like you were an outsider, you know, sort of belonging, not belonging, um, whether it was in private mm-hmm. school or in the horse show world. And, you know, I know you you touched on that, but can you speak a little bit more about that? I think that's, you know, again, kind of given today's situation, um, it's, like, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting, you know, just not feeling like you belong to a certain group or a certain situation.
0: Yeah, the horseshoe world is necessarily exclusive just by dint of it being so expensive, right? Horses are the sport of kings. But there's another level in which it feels exclusive in the tropes that it centers around, the cashmere, the Jodfers. That's become a signifier of its own world, uh, invented by Ralph Lauren. Well, Ralph Lauren was actually a Jewish boy from Brooklyn called Ralphie Lipschitz. That's Ralph Lauren's real name. And It's interesting to me that I, as a Jewish woman, girl, felt like an outsider when in this country of immigrants, everybody's an outsider. And I constantly grappled with, am I worthy of being part of this? Can I claim this leisure activity of Jackie Kennedy and uh, riding bread to death thoroughbreds across the Hamptons? Can I claim it? Can I find joy in it if it wasn't made for me? And I keep coming back to the lesson I learned, which is horses aren't exclusive. Horses care about one thing, and I'm repeating myself, but it's, are you a safe place to be? And I found ultimate inclusion in how horses cared for me and how I cared for them. And in many ways, they taught me how to love. And I think that beauty can be lost when you dress it all up in. Hugely expensive clothes, and when you make it a lifestyle, and not what it really is at its root, which is a sport and a relationship with beautiful animals. And then another thing
1: that you're, um, you, you mentioned in the book was um, something that your father you attributed to your father about him saying, you know, what we're all looking for is a feeling that we achieve only by mastering something. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, how did that? Um, how has that affected you, and, and you know why did you feel that was important to include in the book?
0: You know, my parents, as therapists, the way they helped their patients find their place in the world was encouraging them to something they called mastery, which uh, was uh, not necessarily being a world beater but owning who you are in the world and that that concept of mastery isn't about getting a blue ribbon and winning it's about feeling that you belong and that Uh, you have carved a place in the world. And that message from my father, who, as a Holocaust survivor, was uh, almost erased from his place in the world by Germans who wanted to murder him as a young boy, was deeply impressed into me and applied all over my life, from uh, journalism to my existence, and certainly to horses, that you have to claim your place in the world. And horses allow you to do that. Horses allow you strengths that you would never have possible without their four legs, and they allow you to reach heights that you never thought possible without their daring and their boldness. So it's been really important to me, the concept of mastery. And again, it doesn't mean winning. It means being present and owning your place in the world.
1: So now uh, you're, you're at a horse show uh, as we speak. And mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about your involvement with horses today? You're, you're showing, and you mentioned showing in the hunter world. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that?
0: Um, I have three warm bloods, uh, Trendy, Bravo, and Stellar. I actually have a little business with them. I call it, you know, a Ponzi scheme. I mm-hmm. call it a Ponzi scheme where I lease out <laughs> two of them and they fund my riding so Trendy and Bravo are currently leased to people who love them very much and they support their kid brother Stellar who is my uh adult amateur hunter great great so now are you able to ride a lot it's a question of working i am i i sneak away i sneak away at 6am to ride before i go to work in the office back when we went into offices And uh, my colleagues maybe wonder a little bit why there's a vague O to stables in New York Times (laughs) HQ, but they never can quite place it. Um, But I ride uh, quite a bit. I'm horse crazy. (laughs) Great.
1: And at the beginning of the book, you you say that uh, one reason you wrote the book was to to answer the question of why you and and the rest of us have, have always loved horses. And do you feel like you were able to answer that?
0: I have an answer that I think every listener will understand immediately. And maybe nobody who doesn't listen to your podcast will understand. The answer about why I love horses is because horses. Just some
1: something you're born with, I think. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> so, you know, with the book, um, can you just uh, share when it's going to be released and how
0: people can find it? So Horse Crazy... Was out on August fourth, and it's available anywhere books are sold—from Amazon to IndieBound to your local retailer—and you can call your local tax shop and ask them to sell it too. But it is widely available, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I uh, really enjoyed uh, speaking with you, and uh, again, really enjoyed reading your book. Um, so, uh,
0: thank you for such a deep read. You—you you clearly really went through it. I—it's I, I, so meaningful to me. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode with author Sarah Maslinier. And thanks also to our sponsor, SmartPack. Learn more about how they've made it easy to create a customized supplement program for your horse at smartpack.com. Join the Practical Horseman Podcast again in September when I interview top equitation, hunter, and jumper trainer and judge Jeff Teal about his system for helping his students see a distance and more you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Sandra Olenek, and you've been listening to The Practical Horseman Podcast.